0: His legacy was his knowledge, and his knowledge of whakapapa. His, and if you go into the whare over there, he has a po for every iwi that he, he created, and the boys from the prison helped to do the carving.
1: Remember our queer saying when I first started in the 1950s. How when Jock was there in the 19, late 1930s and throughout the war years, when he had was able to, uh, apart from his uh, service, was able to supply the musical accompaniment which was not guitar but piano yeah, no. and, and that just gave a, dip, a certain resonance to the singing and we've tried to emulate that here with the a uh, Kabahaka and singing some of his songs, uh, the old songs he, he uh, well in those days it was mainly Kingi Tahiwi and also Shuape
2: So many memories from the people that spoke and the songs they sang it was really neat the Orangamai people are obviously very important and also the Mawai Hakona Māori group who sang some of, most of the waiata, um, that was really special but I, I, probably my highlight would be the Ans and, and Veve Jacobson, uh, what she said, including about my mother, I mean that was that was very special.
3: Hene Pua from Apahat Kapahaka group Mawai Hakuna. Bill Nathan of Ngāti Young Māori Club and Andrew McEwen at the official launch of the book Te Oka Pākehā Matua, the biography of Jock McEwen, written by his daughter in law, Dr. Mary McEwen. At the age of 95, Jock McEwen died in 2010.
4: I witnessed mourners arriving from all over the Lower North Island over several days, and I really began to understand. Just quite what a unique human being Jock was. And it was then that I decided to write this book.
3: That's the author, Dr. Mary McEwen, a retired ecologist who married Jock's son, Andrew. Tonight and for the next few weeks, the stories behind the books. This week's Tiahika is at the official launch of Te Oka Pakeha kaumatua I'm Justine Murray and this is Tiahikar. <laughs> Māwai Hakuna, the Upper Hutt based Kapohaka group, has a rich history in performing arts. In the 1960s and 1980s the group was at its most active. Jock wrote songs for the group and often accompanied with piano. Henepoa is one of the original members of Māwai Hakuna.
0: We created our own fano here at the Marae, before the Marae was built. We belong to the Māori Women's Welfare League. And that was the basis of the people who then started fundraising to build down the line. We built this fare first in 76 and then about 10, 13 years later, we built the other fare. At that time, we had Jock always there with us. He'd be here, kneeling down on the ground, teaching us some songs. Not only patere, but he created a lot of new songs. And then we got our kuia coming in, who came to live here at the Marae as our first caretaker. So between her and Jock, uh, Mawai Hakona was born. And we travelled around the world. We went to Australia, uh, Finland, and
3: Yeah. So Mawai Hakona was the kapahaka A- of... Of, of, of Apa
0: Do you think is Jock's legacy? Jock's legacy. Jock's legacy was his knowledge, and his knowledge of Fakapapa. and if you go into the whare over there, he has a poem for every iwi that he he created, and the boys from the prison helped to do the carving. And so every iwi starting at the top of the North Island right down to the bottom of the South Island is represented in our marae. The tukutuku panels were done by the ladies uh, with the help of um, Mere Potu from um, Ngati Parau. Uh, Mere and I worked at the Correspondence School together. So all the tukutuku panels were created at that time by the ladies and we had to come here and work because they were too big to take home. Did he speak te reo Māori a lot? No, not a lot. Not a lot. But if he had to and he was on the paipai, pai, then yes, his, his whole whaikura was in te reo. He and I together would say a few sentences together. Uh, and he would ring me and say, oh, here we got such and such, you know. Do you think we should, you know, and then whatever it is he had on his mind, he would pass it by me first. And then if it was tikanga and te reo Māori, well, he knew I knew that. So... With his knowledge and my knowledge, we were able to um, share our time a lot. My, my daughter, who's here now, she practically lived with Jock and Ruth up at their house. She was there nearly every weekend and he'd take her home uh, and spend the day with her and then I'd go and pick her up after school.
3: Ngāti Pōneke Young Māori Club was established in the mid-1930s at e Pabitiā Marae, Wellington. President Bill Nathan.
1: He was a big man in terms of what he gave to Māori, in terms of te reo, in terms of singing, in terms of carving, and in terms of the position he held, he ensured that Māori did not miss out when it came to applying to government for assistance in, in their welfare and in their cultural inheritance that belonged to them, but only government could sometimes help with their financial assistance. I remember our queer saying when I first started in the 1950s how when Jock was there in the 19, late 1930s and throughout the war years when he had was able to uh, apart from his uh, service was able to supply the musical accompaniment which was not guitar but piano yeah, no. and and that just gave a, dip, a, a certain resonance to the singing and we've tried to emulate that here with the kaumātua uh, kapahaka and singing some of his songs, uh, the old songs he, he uh, well in those days it was mainly Kingi Tahiwi and also Shuape Rana songs and his wonderful way in which he encouraged Māori to hold fast to the culture, much like Shuape Rana did and he echoed that and he visited the club on many occasions and inspired our young people and asked them to continue to develop their culture, their, their singing, their waiata, and their language.
5: Nā, ko tētahi Pākehā keiko nei enoho ana. He Pākehā Rongo Nui. He Pākehā Hinangaro Māori, a reo Māori hoki. Nā, ko iete tumuaki o te tarimo ngā take Māori. Jock
3: This Pakeha is popular and he possesses Māori thinking and Māori language. He is the head of the Department of Māori Affairs. Remember his name, Jock McEwen. Alas, let him tell his story
5: kite Hui united nations ko te take o ko te o te o ki te tonga. Rā, ko te, te ho ka Te hanga in a fare cotahimano o o Coteahu <coughs>
3: Recorded in 1966, that was Jock talking with Ted Nipia about a trip he attended with the government in South America, in Brazil. He was there to represent both Māori and Pākehā. Jock said that he attended the United Nations Conference and the subject was discussing apartheid in South Africa. He said the Hui was held in Brazil. It was a new town and it was still under development. He says it was a large and beautiful place. Minister of Māori Development and the leader of the Māori Party, Te Ururua And I've
6: got to say that it's not often you get non-Māori making such a huge impression on Māori communities. That doesn't happen easily. There's got to be something about a person that they can move into Māori communities, a Scotsman at that, (laughs) and find a place within a Māori community, in fact, within Māori society. There's got to be something special about that person that they can find that space amongst our people. For Haka, the carving, he obviously had plenty of skills and why, why on earth would a Scotsman dive into Māori culture at that time when things Māori were not exactly the hottest topic uh, to be spoken about? In fact, He may well have suffered a fair bit of criticism for him being so close to Māori communities. I don't get it, but there's something hugely special about a person who can make a breakthrough in New Zealand society and in particular to be so close to Māoridom that they sing about him, they talk about him to this day. It's been reported that Jock had a deep understanding and respect not only for Māori people but our Pacifica brothers and sisters which in turn led to a distinguished public service career in Māori and Pacific Island affairs. As a Scotsman who had a passion for and spoke fluently in te reo Māori, fluently in te reo Māori, it is appropriate his name is linked with the annual national speech competition known as Ngā Manu Kōrero. The runners-up of the Korimako section, or the senior English section, a waka huia taonga, that he carved. So that's his place marked out amongst Māori communities and the Manu Quarter, which is every year uh, a, huge, uh, a huge institution amongst Māori communities. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly what areas of Māoridom he was most passionate about because his interests were numerous. He was a kaver, an orator, a linguist and a composer. He was a holder of tribal histories and knowledge and that's just what he uh, did in his spare time. <laughs>
3: The book Te Uka Pākehā Kaimatua was released at Orongomai Marai in Upper Hutt this week. It tells the story of Jock McEwen in chronological order, starting with his Scottish ancestry. His great-grandmother was 14 years old when she and her family arrived in the country on board the Blenheim. Her first language was Gaelic, but she quickly picked up the Māori language. Andrew and Dr Miriam McEwan discuss the premise of the book that began
4: when Jock died six years ago. During his tangi, of course, most of the speeches were in Te Reo, which I don't speak. Um, And I had already written a biography of my own father, and I just realised from all the wonderful things that were said about Jock at the funeral and the tangi, that he really was a totally unique human being, and that was what got me going. His father was the headmaster of a small rural school at Arangi near Fielding, and <clears throat> Jock actually started school before he was five because his older brother had started school and he didn't have anybody to play with, so he walked across and entered the school and they didn't have the heart to send him away, so he started that school very young. And many of the children were Māori, and at that time, uh, whereas in some schools children were not allowed to speak Māori in school, this was not a native school, and so that rule didn't apply. And Jock's father, Malcolm, who was the headmaster, spoke a bit of Māori himself, and he uh, was quite happy for the children in the playground to speak Māori, so Jock started started to speak te reo and he became incredibly fascinated by everything to do with Māori.
7: Jock also absorbed and came to love many other aspects of Māori culture. For example, he learnt from his schoolmates how to make plaits from the blades of flax leaves. One such plait which had been in widespread use at the time of European settlement, was made of four pieces and used as rope in several parts of the North Island. In its initial stages, it looked like a windmill, and Māori children used it as a toy.
4: He went along to the local marae and um, was spoken to there um, by the the kaumātua who really took him under his wing. And they were the juries.
2: And two older women, there was Kahurao Tete's mother, Mihi, yes. Mihiki Mihikiturangi, and, and Mrs Penahira, who was married to a cousin of Mason's.
4: And as it says in the book, they gently corrected his mistakes by repeating correctly what he had tried to say, rather than by pointing out where he had gone wrong. And with this coaching, his interest in Māori grew and grew we wish he had remembered that when he was, try when we tried to speak to Al, because <laughs> we we became too scared to open our mouths. To be honest, um, and in fact, um, I I was very much in awe of Jock as his daughter-in-law. He was he was a very strict father, not to me, but to Andrew, and his brothers, and um, strict to his grandchildren and i I really was in fear and trembling to a certain extent, which surprises a lot of Maori because i don't think he was like that to them. Um, yes, there is the word blunt yes that, that's used in the book, and i 'm thinking was he was he quite scary to to me he was, but when hmm. we interviewed a number of his maori friends and um and sort of asked what he was like with them, and on the whole. He didn't seem to have um, scared them as much as he scared me. <laughs> we move on to him
3: um, adapting some of his mother's skills. His mother, Jessie, was a bit of a poet. He, he's, I think he's about 16 or maybe 17 when he's you know, <laughs> publishing um, poetry. There was an old man of taonui who heard the bell notes of a tui. <laughs> I'm left in the lurch. I'll be quite late for church, cried that funny old man of taonui. <laughs> There was an old man of Aurangi who went to a big Māori tangi. When he saw them all crying, he cried, I am dying, that silly old man (laughs) of Aurangi.
4: I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was very much in two minds about whether to put those in the book. Uh, Where did you get that poem from? How did you dig that up for your research? Well, um, we did have a lot of papers in our house and if it's not footnoted, that's where they came from. Otherwise, he had um, deposited a lot of stuff in the Alexander Turnbull Library, so I did a lot of research there, and also in the Upper Hutt Library, where there is a collection of his books and papers. In terms of the home life, um, uh, Mary,
3: and even Andrew, if you can answer this, how did he juggle being inquisitive about teo Māori and also adhering to his own Scottish side, Scottish
2: heritage,
3: um,
4: Christa, uh, Presbyterian yes. was the religion yes, in the home. Yeah. I, I, no, I no, just no. think they were very very tolerant open. and very mm. open, yes.
2: I don't, I don't think there were any problems. No. Well, he probably still had to help milk the cow or, or, yes. or things like that. His, his, uh, his father was... Uh, would would require certain um, standards to be met and certain jobs to be done and and his mother would Jesse was also the sort of person that uh, told you what you had to do and you did it especially
4: uh, he he used to practice the piano for an hour and a half every morning as well as doing the chores so they were pretty disciplined but I'm sure there was no bias against anything Maori and I think that's partly because. Um, Malcolm in particular, well they'd both been brought up in a part of the country um, where there had not been any um, conflict and so members of the family had always known Maori and as I may have mentioned, his father spoke a little Maori, I I don't know about Jessie, I didn't hear that I didn't find that she did, but um, they had Maori friends I suppose, so yeah I think that's why I mean it might have been quite different in a in a different household or a different part of the country, even yeah. so let's move on through Jock's life, obviously
3: as he um became more educated and um seeanga um hired Jock to work at the Department of Native Affairs. Can you tell us more about
4: that, Mary? Well, yes, I'm not sure that Nata could have hired him because it was not long after Nata had Sadly, he had to resign as minister, but he was still working in the minister's office. Nata was working on Nam Mo his wonderful books of the Waiata um, that he collected in those days. And so he certainly got to know Jop very, very soon because as a young um, clerk in the Native Affairs Department, Um, Jock had to carry papers up to the minister's office and, and met Nata there.
7: Jock had become one of Nata's closest associates and believed he knew him as well as any other Pākehā. While Nata was in Wellington as the member for Eastern Māori and also after he retired, he stayed in the Midland Hotel. Jock was one of about five men he would sometimes invite to spend the evening with him. They would sit in his room, either on the bed or the floor, wherever there was space, and Nata would talk to them until well after midnight. As a young man in a Pākehā, Jock felt inspired and deeply privileged to be part of his special group of friends, which also included Charlie Bennett, John Grace and Nata's sons Henry and Bill. In this way, the great Māori leader mentored Jock through the early phase of his career.
4: In the meantime, as well as um, working for Native Affairs, as Andrew mentioned, uh, his father got a bit fed up in Native Affairs, and I I learnt from one of my informants that that was because the new boss of Native Affairs at the time thought that Jock was too, too close to Maori. This was a Pakeha, of course, mm. and and he was warned by. Um, now, who was the Maori
2: head of.
4: Tippi Ropiha, T- who was the first Maori head of Maori Native Affairs. Um, actually, it did change to Maori Affairs around this time. Um, and Tippi warned Jock that when he retired, this other man would be taking over as the boss, and that he didn't think Jock had much of a future because he was too close to Maori. I found that staggering. Okay. So he saw that there was a job a, a job advertised in the Cook Islands and he went to I think island territories department to apply for this job he was interviewed for that and in the interview he was asked whether he would consider taking another job that was on the market at the time as resident commissioner nuae island Sir Apirana Ngata, a friend and mentor to Jock, was born in
3: Te Araroa in 1874. His work was aligned with improving the quality of life for Māori. He was educated at Te Aote College, University of Canterbury and the University of Auckland. In 1905 he was elected into Parliament and held his Eastern Māori seat for 38 years. He died in 1950.
7: Jock felt Ngata's death greatly not only at a personal level, but also because his friend and mentor had left him with a large task, completing the new edition of the Māori Dictionary, begun in 1948. After Nāta's funeral, the Dictionary Committee decided to carry on working, mainly from material Nāta and Jock had collected. Jock took responsibility for completing the dictionary, and the committee let him use Nata's copies of the draft, to which he had added many new words and annotations, mostly from information gathered while compiling Na Jock worked on the dictionary in his spare time, until at a Gisborne meeting of the committee in 1953, he resigned as secretary because he was moving to Nue Island.
2: I was nine years old when we got off the boat in New <laughs> on, on New Year's Eve 1953.
5: But
4: the amazing thing was that <laughs> the reason the job was advertised was that the resident commissioner had been murdered in his bed on New Island um, by three escaped prisoners armed with machete. And so Jock, when he was asked if he'd consider going there, he said, well, I'll have to ask my wife. So he went home. And he said to Ruth, they asked me if I'd apply for the job on Nguyen. And she said, oh, isn't that where they just murdered the resident commissioner? And he said, yes, that's right. And she looked at him and she said, but they wouldn't do a thing like that to us, to you. You're different. She, she didn't actually say you're different, but she meant that. And I think that was absolutely true. So he took the job on Nguyen. And um, on the way to Niue by sea, which took a few days, how long did it take, Andrew? About? Oh, uh,
2: well, the round trip was three weeks, so yeah. it was about ten days or seven or eight days. Um,
4: luckily, there was one of the pastors from one of the villages on Niue was coming back to Niue on the ship. Pastor and... Ikiua. Oh, right.
2: From Hakubu.
4: <laughs> and he helped Jock to learn the basics of Niuean language. And so that right from the beginning, he knew how to greet and just say a few words of niaean, and that made all the difference. And while he was there, he, he learnt to speak fluent
8: niaean. Uh, my name is Tom Etuata and uh, I'm... Uh, Oh, from Wellington, but originally from Niwe. Yeah, came here in
3: 1968. 1968.
8: So what do you remember of Jock? Oh, Jock um, came to Niwe, I think I was eight, 1953, and I still recall the the kind of uh, change of villages in Niwe when Jock came because he had to pay uh, an official visit to each village in Niwe. So my village in Niwe welcomed him, and that's when I still remember lots of memories about his family, especially the two two children, or mm-hmm. three, three boys. Yes. Yeah. And you know, uh, one of the things that Jock uh, left for Niwe, he was the first uh, person to produce Niwe dictionary mm-hmm. and written by Jock McEwen. That's the very first... Uh, Dictionary for Niue language, and uh, quite uh, ironic that uh, uh, we are celebrating Niue language week this week. And uh, it's good in our conscience that um, one of the contributors to the language is through Jock McEwen. Uh, Having this dictionary, it it helps Niuean people in terms of English, and it's also helped expatriates who came to Niue and learn about in, the introduction to the language.
3: Was he fluent in Niwe?
8: Very fluent, yeah. Uh, it's amazing how he picked up the language to arrive in Niwe. It could well be uh, perhaps six months or between six months and a year then he picked up the language with the help of people helping him. Uh, but I was so uh, impressed of uh, his uh, uh, fluent in the language, speaking, conversation, and that's still with him when I, uh, because I'm a Presbyterian minister, I usually uh, visit, a pastoral visit, and at one time uh, at Karuri Resto, yes. where he spent some of his last years there, it happens that I uh, visited him, and we sat down, and uh, we talked in Niwain, and I was amazed of how this man still maintained the language in that form.
3: <laughs> Jock achieved much in his 95 years. He was a curious child who learned te reo Māori at a young age. He was mentored by the renowned carver Pene Tayapa and would go on to teach carving to many young men in
4: prisons and as part of access schemes. When Jock was teaching his carvers, um, he, he never asked them why they were in prison, but they often told him. He believed the conf this is quoting, he believed the confidence, confidence they placed in him was one advantage of having white hair. One day, he spoke to a prisoner who'd just finished a carving on one of the popo and was gazing at his work. He told Jock he was in prison because he'd been involved in an unsuccessful armed hold-up of a bank. And when Jock asked him why, he said logically, well, that's where they keep the money. And this boy continued to sit for a long time, staring at the carving, until Jock felt moved to ask, what's the matter, are you tired? No, he answered, I was just thinking that one day I'm going to take my mokupuna into the Michael Fowler Centre, and I'm going to say, take a look at that, son. I carved that. And another carver who was serving a three-year sentence for aggravated robbery said he he wouldn't change places with anyone on the outside world. He said, you get a funny feeling knowing that you are doing the things that your ancestors did.
3: Dr Mary McEwen, author of the book Te Oka Pākehā Kaumātua, the biography of Jock McEwen, with her husband and Jock's son, Andrew McEwan. As well as the book launch itself this week, copies of the book will be given to 400 secondary schools in New Zealand, New Cook Islands and Tokelau, made possible from a grant from Stout Trust facilitated by the Friends of the Turnbull Library.